bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 10th, 2018. Two years ago this week, Senators Maria Cantwell, Orrin Hatch, and Ron Wyden introduced the second version of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act of 2016. Now, you may recall, they introduced legislation two months earlier, but then they came back with a more robust version in July. That second version added 17 items to the bill, and that version was the template for the legislation they introduced eight months later in the following session of Congress. That later legislation was introduced with 12 co-sponsors. Now, that bill currently has grown to 40 co-sponsors in the Senate. Also on the House side, the House version, which has most of the same provisions, however doesn't have the 50% allocation increase, is now up to 159 co-sponsors. Now on to this week's podcast, where I'm going to share some news about two notices concerning the HUD Rental Assistance Administration Program and what they mean for public housing agencies. I'll also have information about a recent letter requesting guidance from the Treasury Department and IRS concerning Opportunity Zones. Then I'll wrap up this week's episode with a roundup of other industry headlines. So, if you're ready, let's get started. HUD last week published two Federal Register notices about the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, or RAD. The notices implemented changes made in the Fiscal Year 2018 Appropriations Act. That, as you might remember, was the spending bill that not only increased the cap for RAD, but it also extended the program through the year 2024. Now, the headline provision in the first notice was to officially increase the program's cap from 225,000 to 455,000 public housing units as of January 1, 2019. Now, there were some other significant items in that first notice as well. For example, the notice made modifications to the process that HUD uses to set initial contract rents for awards made due to this increase. The notice also simplified the process for public housing agencies, or PHAs, to withdraw existing awards and replace them with others. Another provision describes the steps PHAs have to take to keep their position on the RAD waiting list if they've already submitted letters of intent. Now, the second notice addressed some more technical details. For instance, the notice expanded the ability of PHAs to rent bundle project-based voucher contracts when some are in RAD and others aren't. And the notice also officially permits PHAs to establish project-specific utility allowances for specific developments. The notice also provides alternative limits for developer fees when a PHA has a waiting list preference for families that are exiting homelessness. Additionally, the second notice also creates a streamlined conversion option for small PHAs that would be those with 50 or fewer units. While the notices really just implement changes to RAD that were made in the appropriations legislation, it's important for PHAs to stay informed. The RAD program continues to make a dramatic impact on public housing. But, as those of you working in PHAs know, the requirements and regulations under the RAD program are different than for public housing. My partner, Rich Larson, in our Tom's River, New Jersey office, says that PHAs should pay particular attention to when the final public housing operating subject application is made for fiscal year 2018. 
he notes that if the final operating subsidy proration amount remains similar to the published interim eligibility amount, which is 93.46%, then he expects more PHAs to make a move to RAD. This 93.46% proration of the operating subsidy is the highest it's been in several years. Now, we're not sure of the final proration amount, but it should come out in the next few months. Now, the proration amount and the capital funding are both important figures in the funding for RAD conversions. So when you couple the high subsidy proration number with the large increase in the capital funding this year, it'll be possible, or at least be very tempting, for PHAs to convert to RAD as soon as possible. Now, Rich says that those factors may lead to the expanded cap being used up very quickly. Now, if you have questions about how these changes affect your properties, please contact Rich Larson in our Toms River, New Jersey office. Now, let's turn to Opportunity Zones. We've seen plenty of action concerning the Opportunity Zones incentive over the past few months, and there's still more to come. For instance, we've already seen governors nominate Opportunity Zones and the Treasury Department designate them as Qualified Opportunity Zones. The final round of Opportunity Zones were designated last month, and the first Opportunity Funds are now active. Now, in prior podcasts, we've talked about the Novigrad Opportunity Zones Working Group and its submission of a guidance request letter to Treasury. And I should note, the Opportunity Zones Working Group will be sending an additional guidance request letter to Treasury in the next week or two. Also, in last week's podcast, we talked about how the Opportunity Zones Coalition had recently sent a letter requesting guidance from the IRS and Treasury Department as well. And also last week, we promised to provide more detail in this week's podcast. Well, let's move on with that detail. The Opportunity Zones Coalition is a group of 46 stakeholders that includes Novogratz and Company. The letter sought guidance and highlighted the need for flexibility, scalability, and simplicity in the administrative rules and the implementation of the Opportunity Zones incentive. Now, several issues were addressed in the Opportunity Zones Coalition letter. First were issues for qualified opportunity funds. The letter asked for guidance to ensure adequate time to deploy and reinvest capital from those funds. The coalition suggested a one-year window before reinvestment, with a maximum of 30 months before initial deployment. Now, the letter also suggested specific time periods for initial investments and for the disposal of business property that stops qualifying as such. Guidance was also sought on how to measure the assets for a qualified opportunity fund. The legislation requires that 90% of a fund's assets be qualified opportunity zone property but give no indication of how to determine asset values. Now, other issues for the Qualified Opportunity Funds included the definition of substantially all and assistance on measuring intangible assets of the fund. The coalition sought resolution of some issues concerning Qualified Opportunity Zone businesses. That includes a definition of the term substantially all in defining how much of the Qualified Opportunity Zone business property must be included to meet the statute's definition of Opportunity Zone business. The letter also asks for a 70% interpretation of substantially all, as well as other guidance. A third area of guidance is in Qualified Opportunity Zone business property. Specifically, the coalition requested guidance on the acquisition test, original use test, and substantially all test. Now, there were several er other areas that the coalition letter mentioned as needing guidance, including how partnership tax rules apply, 
confirmation that tax credit programs, such as the low-income housing tax credit, new market tax credit, new store tax credit, can be used in combination with the Opportunity Zones incentive, as well as reporting requirements for qualified opportunity funds, and an explanation as to how Community Reinvestment Act requirements are met by qualified opportunity zone investments. Now, the coalition also included a list of issues that generated questions for potential investors and qualified opportunity fund managers. The letter asked Treasury to confirm that the group's understanding of those issues is correct. The coalition's letter is an important step as we continue to see this new incentive developing. Now, as you know, the Opportunity Zones incentive was a significant benefit for community development that was included in last year's tax reform legislation. But like all new incentives, it takes time to work out all the details. This letter is evidence of the interest by stakeholders to make Opportunity Zones as effective as possible. Now, we'll keep you updated as we learn more about these issues, including any responses from the IRS or Treasury. I'd also like to remind you that Novogratz Company will hold our first Opportunity Zones conference on October 2nd and 3rd in New Orleans. I'd also like to remind you to take part in helping frame this conversation. I mentioned earlier about our Opportunity Zones Working Group. Well, I've included links to the Opportunity Zones Conference and the Working Group and the Coalition's letter in today's show notes. If you're interested in participating in the Opportunity Zones Working Group, please reach out to us. Turning to other news, the Chief Tax Counsel for the Senate Finance Committee said technical corrections to last year's tax legislation are a, and I quote, top priority for Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch. Jennifer Acuna, the chief tax counsel, made that statement to Politico. In the interview she gave, she pointed out that it took three years for Congress to pass technical corrections to the PATH Act. Acuna said the committee is trying to identify any potential problems and since those technical corrections could include amendments to the tax credit programs and the opportunities and incentive, we've been keeping an eye out for technical corrections legislation. Now let's talk about HUD for a moment again. HUD published a notice in the Federal Register seeking comments on a proposed new collection of information on the Housing Trust Fund. HUD's seeking new information on project-specific data to track performance and compliance. Now the comments are due 60 days from when they were published. There's a link to the notice in today's show notes. And finally, California's Tax Credit Allocation Committee announced last week that it's created videos to help low-income housing tax credit property owners prepare their place and service documentation for those projects with California tax credit reservations. Now, the committee added the videos to its website. If you have any questions about documentation for your place and service packages in California, I'd urge you to call my partner, Jim Kroger, in our Walnut Creek, California office. Well, that brings you to the end of this week's report. One final reminder, we have a low-income housing tax credit basics webinar next week. This webinar is a great opportunity to learn about or reacquaint yourself with the low-income housing tax credit program. Also, if you have new members on your team, it's a great way for them to learn some of the basics. I'll share a link to that webinar in today's show notes. Well, I hope you're enjoying your summer, and that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast, or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. 
You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.